Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here's your host, Rob Dalrymple. Hi, this is Rob Dalrymple, and I want to welcome you to the Determined Truth Podcast. Today's podcast is from an introductory course on how to interpret the Bible that I presented in 2012. If you'd like the lecture notes to follow along with this presentation, I encourage you to log into my website, determinedtruth.wordpress.com. Click on the link on the left side of the page titled Alphabetical Listing of All Classes. And then find the class, Biblical Interpretation. That'll take you to the page with all the audio recordings as well as a, a substantial set of notes to help guide you through this course. If you like these podcasts, please subscribe and let others know as well. Thanks for tuning in, and here's our study on how to interpret the Bible. Lord Jesus, we ask that you'd make yourself known. Jesus Christ is himself God made known as the word testifies. And you've given us of your spirit to make you known. And so we pray that your spirit would make yourself known. Make yourself known in our hearts and the depth of our very being that we might be transformed by the understanding that we receive. That we might be more impassioned to study and to read and to meditate and to memorize and to teach and to fellowship on the Word. But, Lord, we know that we must have humble hearts. We know that, as we discussed last week, we all take to the table our own agendas. We, we bring to the Word and what the Word means, we just bring to the table our own preconceptions. And it's not always bad, but, Lord... Too often those preconceptions have influenced what we think the word means. We've, we've softened um, rebukes. We've, we've eased over ethical standards. We've, we've even painted the word of God just by our own, our own assumption. So Lord, we ask your forgiveness for that. We ask, Lord, that we would be cleansed of all unrighteousness and of anything and everything that uh, is in our heart that, that inhibits us from worshiping and serving the Lord our God. May it be cleansed and removed. May we be made anew and be made fresh by the power and the cleansing of the Spirit of God. And then may we be just humbled by the, by the incredibleness, by just even beginning to dwell and even beginning to think about who you are. Your ways so far transcend our ways. So we ask now, Lord, that you would just be glorified in this task. That we would be humble servants. That we would bring glory and honor and praise to the Lord our God in all that we do. We thank you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're going to start again now. We're on, uh, as far as the outline goes, we're going to be on page 5. Um, but we're going to start by uh, talking about Luke 16 again. And last week... Uh, we began with the parable of the unrighteous steward at the beginning of Luke 16. And my goal over the... And, and most weeks we'll start with looking at Luke 15, Luke 16, or, or maybe another story somewhere. Or another. Uh, my goal is to kind of help us in this process of answering those questions of, of how do we interpret the Bible. Last week I said I have one real goal, and that is to simply let you know that the Bible is just not easy to interpret, right? And I think we found that out with the parable of Luke 16, right? Um, and it's like, I have a feeling if we went over the parable again right now, 
most of you would be going, I forgot what it means. Um, uh, it's a difficult, complicated thing. But what are some other things that we learned last week in looking at the parable of the unrighteous steward in Luke 16? Uh, what, 1 through, I think we went 1 through 13. What are some other things that we, that in our, in our effort to understand the parable, we also realized, oh, I also need to know or understand, okay, Jesus, which is what we'll be doing in great detail tonight. And we're going to make that point with this parable, well, with these chapters in the next couple weeks. So, very well. The audience, okay, the, to whom the author was writing, okay, very well. The parable itself pulled out a couple things, right? That we could not have understood the parable unless we understood the culture, right? Culture was huge. Most notably, that honor and shame culture and what was happening with that. All right, very well. Um, historical context, all right, things like that. All right, very well. So now what I want to do, if you have your Bibles, open them up, please. Okay, to Luke, to Luke 16. And this is especially important in the Gospel of Luke. You have to be careful of chapter breaks. All right, now, at the same time, let me say this. The, the, the guy who did the chapter breaks, who put the, the chapters and verses in, like 5th to ninth century A.D., all right, hundreds of years later, all right, did a really good job. He really knew his stuff. Okay? But he also made a couple mistakes, if I want to call them mistakes. All right, and he also... Sometimes, like, we just, you know, we can't have a chapter that goes on for 145 verses, so I've got to throw some chapter breaks in there. And what happens with those chapter breaks is it causes us to stop. I don't know if you, you know, for example, maybe you do a, 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 daily, a, a, a daily Bible reading. I was going to say a Bailey Bible reading, but that just wouldn't work. Okay. A daily Bible reading. All right. And you say, I'm going to read a chapter. So you read chapter 15, and then you stop. You read chapter 16, then you stop. Or maybe you say, I'm just going to read a section. So you wait, you know, you find a section heading above verse, 13, uh, above verse 14. I stop there. When that happens, what we're doing is we fail to recognize that there may or may not be a relationship between the earlier passage and the later passage. The chapter break causes us to stop and go, okay, I'm starting something all anew now. And we, what, we, what we realize is, wait a second. Luke is... Now, I mentioned this a little bit last week, and that is the Bible was, was written in order to be read aloud. And the audience was going to hear it. So major chapter breaks, major um, sections, or, 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 are, are going to be something that, you, that the hearer would recognize. Okay? So, because they don't have a Bible in front of them. They, they, you, know, you can't afford everyone to have one. So they don't know. Oh, and the hero doesn't go chapter. The reader doesn't go chapter sixteen now. They, th- those things didn't exist anyway. All right. So with that being said, let's go to Luke chapter sixteen. Now, we, we looked at verses one through thirteen last week in this difficult parable, and maybe we'll reiterate a few things from it. But look at verse one in chapter sixteen of the Gospel of Luke. All right, and know what happens. Now he was also saying to the disciples, Ah. The parable of Luke 16, verse 1, is introduced by this little phrase, he was also saying to the disciples. And what does that tend to tell us? Is that it? He was saying something earlier, ahead of that. Also saying to us, you're like, the chapter break of Luke 16, it's not a bad chapter break, because you have to put them in, otherwise 15 would just go on forever. But 
Immediately Luke is letting us know, I'm continuing the same story. Okay? I'm continuing the same story. So here we go. Um, chapter 16, verse 14. Let me scroll down here. Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening to all these things. So the parable he just told in verse 1 through 13, he spoke to his disciples, but the Pharisees are listening in. They heard it. Right? So now we know that the parable, of, or, or the, what's the parable ultimately? Or, or actually, it's not a parable, it's a kind of a rebuke here. Um, the speech of Jesus in verses 14, or verse 15 through 18, is related to the fact that they heard the parable of verses 1 through 13. Make sense? Okay, now... Um, if last week's lesson uh, 1 through 13 didn't tell us that the Bible's not easy to figure out, we're going to see, okay, this one's not easy to figure out either. So let's, let's work through this one. Here we go. Verse 14. Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening to all these things, and they were scoffing at him. He said to them, you are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men. But God knows your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since then, the gospel of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone is forcing his way into it. But it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of the letter of the law to fail. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. Now, there was a certain rich man. See what happens? I mean, I have a red-letter Bible, and it tells me that we're going into a parable of Luke, verse 19, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, and there's no black letters. There's no pause. Luke doesn't say, oh, and then he went ahead and told a parable. He just, Jesus just keeps talking. Okay, so we have to realize the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, all right, verses, you know, and, and see, my Bible has a, has a heading above verse 19. So now when we see a heading, what do we do? We stop. But what we realize is it's red letters, red letters. It, it, Jesus didn't stop. You know, Luke didn't stop. Luke didn't. Inter- all right, so we realize the parable of the rich man and Lazarus is related to whatever he just said here. But what did he just say? Does verse 18 strike you as odd? Very out of place. Okay, so the, rich, the Pharisees who were lovers of money... If anyone divorces his wife, you're like, huh? What does this have to do? All right, let's go back. The parable of verses 1 through, it's kind of 1 through 13, but you can stop in verse 10, verse, verse 9 or whatever it was. This unrighteous steward, remember that story? This, the steward was squandering the master's money. The master said, look, you've been squandering my money, so I'm going to fire you. The steward goes, oh, no, what am I going to do? I'm too, uh, I'm too, uh, um, uh, it's too shameful to beg, and I'm not strong enough to dig. So now it's like I have no way of making any money. So here's what I'll do. While I'm still employed, I guess he maybe gave him a two-week notice, I'm going to go out and make as many friends as I can. How much money do you owe my master? A hundred. Okay, make it eighty, you're good. How much do you owe my master? Fifty. Okay, great. A hundred. Great. Make it fifty, we're good. And now what happens, remember the honor and shame, Right? When you do somebody a favor, they now owe you. If you loan to somebody, they owe you. It's not like, it's just the way it works. So now, the master cans me two weeks later, Don, I need a place to stay. Right? He owes me. 
He's in my debt because I've... All right, so Jesus then praises the unrighteous steward for his shrewdness, not for his unrighteousness. That's the first problem that when we read that parable is it seems like he's praising the unrighteous steward. Yeah, but for his shrewdness. And then he, but remember, the parable was told to the disciples. He's telling the disciples, look, you too need to learn how to be shrewd. But not so that they take you into houses now. But so that they receive you into eternal dwellings. Now, I read a little into the context, and a little bit into the story, because I think I have an idea of what's going on in chapter 15, 16, and, you know, so I, all right, which we'll see if this continues to play out. But what I said was that those who receive you into houses now are the wealthy, the ones who, who, who can afford to take you in. Jesus' words were, right, if you, you know, let's go back a little bit, in case a few of you weren't here last week. I want to bring everyone up to speed. Um, so Jesus says, verse 9, I say to you, make friends for yourselves by the means of the mammon of unrighteousness, that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. So what I think is happening, and we'll see if this plays out, is that Jesus is saying, do favors for the poor. Use your money for those who can't pay you back now, but for those who will pay you back in eternity. So I want you to be just as shrewd as that guy was, but not dishonest, and gain friends among the poor. That guy did use his shrewdness to gain friends among the wealthy, and it helped him in the here and now. All right, are we okay with that? All right, and this honor and shame, this debt, I owe you, I, you owe me, if I fellowship with you and you're honored, then I get honor. If I fellowship with you and you're shameful, then I bring shame on me, so I won't do that. I'm going to invite the, the wealthy people to my banquet because they can invite me back, but I'm not going to invite the poor to my banquet because they can't invite me back, and, and it's no good if they owe me because they, can they, they can't even pay up. All right, so now, verse 14, the Pharisees who were lovers of money. Now he addresses them. All right. Talk to me. Verses 15, 16, 17, 18. Anything you might see, it's a difficult passage. Totally recognize that. Anything you might see here that, that you got an insight to? Oh, okay, is this what's happening here? How about this? Why were they scoffing at Jesus? Let's start with that one. Verse 14. They were listening to him, and they were scoffing at him. What are they doing? Rolling their eyes. They're scoffing at him. Yeah, but in this in this culture, what's that accomplish? You're exactly right, Ralph. Well, they're fluffing this up. It's shaming him. They're shaming him. All right, honor and shame culture, right? So if I shame you, that makes me up here. One way to get up here is to put you down. They were mocking him. They're scoffing at him. All right. Now what that means is this. See, what's in jeopardy here is the mass. All right. It's Jesus versus us. So if I scoff at Jesus, then I put you guys all in a situation of, of, well, do I align myself with that guy who just got shamed? Or do I align myself with this guy over here who's the more honorable? It's a way of, of winning an argument. It's not a very good way when there's Jesus on the other side, but they're scoffing at him. They're trying to shame him. Make sense? Okay. Now, Jesus' words, verse 15, you justify yourselves in the sight of men. Right, what, is that, what does he mean? You're making yourself look good to the people around you, right? 
what are they doing with their money? They are they're lovers of money. They're using their money to buy buy friendships, to buy to buy to buy favor, right? Whether I loan you something, whether I give you something, whether I have a large banquet and I invite you, all of which in this culture you now owe me, right? So look at me, look how great I am because I did this for Paul. I'm so great because I did this for Alice, right? Now look how great I am. Of course, it looks good on the outside, but we all know the motivation, and that is, uh, he owes me, and if I need it, I got it. Okay, I bought myself some security. So, you justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your heart. Right? My motivation wasn't actually because I cared about Paul, it was because I wanted to get something out of it. I wanted either to gain my own honor, I wanted to be valued in the sight of everybody else, or I knew that if I ever needed something, I can go run to the people that I just loan everything to. All right, very, very well. Makes sense? Okay. Now, remember the teachings of Jesus. And that is, you know how it says in the law, you shall not commit murder? I say to you that you cannot even have hatred in your heart. See, murder is something that you do, but where does, the, where does the idea of murder come from? Your heart. You heard that it was said you shall not commit sexual immorality. Immorality, sorry. Um, but I say to you that if you lust after a woman, you've committed that thing already. Yeah, I know, I'm just kidding. All right. You've committed adultery already in your heart. Because those kinds of sins come from the heart. The teachings of Jesus is, you have the law. You have the law that says, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, and do this, and do this, do this. I'm now concerned, says Jesus, with your heart. If your heart is right, the actions will take place. If your heart is not right, I don't care whether you actually murdered the guy or not. You wanted to. You were looking for an opportunity to. You would have done so if you had the opportunity. You would have done so if you were convinced that you wouldn't be caught. Fear of punishment is the only reason why you didn't commit murder. You're guilty, says Jesus. Okay, so now, with that in mind, God knows your heart. Okay? Uh, For that which is uh, highly esteemed among men, honor and shame, is detestable. Now, is that the word your translations have? Abomination. Okay, very actually, a really good translation here is... All right, this is something that you just would not have known, okay? There's almost no way to really know this. For the Jewish world of the New Testament time, Jesus, Paul, Matthew, everywhere in the New Testament, all right, one of the very most common ways of, uh, or, or this, is, this is a little technical, so don't worry about the details of it here, but one of the ways that they would interpret the Bible is they would use one word, a key word, and every time that key word appears in the Bible, it's a relevant passage to quote. For us, a word, it's like, you can't make that verse and that verse and associate them because they have the same word in it. Right? The context is radically different. right? But for them, if one word is used here, that would link that statement with any other time that word was used anywhere else. The word detestable or an abomination is used three times in the Old Testament. Three times, okay? And the three things that are an abomination are, number one, idolatry. 
okay, in the book of Isaiah. Secondly, it's used uh, in regards to uh, immoral financial dealings. Somebody who deals immorally with money is an abomination. All right? And third, anyone who marries a divorced woman is an abomination. Now you know why verse 18 is in there? You are doing that which is detestable. You are doing abomination, says Jesus, because you're using money in an inappropriate manner. And therefore, you're equally guilty with the one who commits adultery. He didn't say that they're committing adultery. He's just simply saying, you're just as guilty as them. Because a person who does immoral financial dealings commits an abomination. Does that make sense? He commits an abomination. A person who marries a divorced woman commits an abomination. You guys are doing immoral financial dealings. Therefore, you're just as guilty as the one who divorces, marries a divorced woman. Make sense? All right. Now, that's something that you would never have gotten if you knew the history and the culture and the context. You just have to know how they're interpreting the Bible, and that's a word study is probably not going to even uh, uh, unveil that to you as well. All right, let's go back to verse, verse 16 now. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John, verse 16. John who? John the Baptist. All right? There's a, there's a statement in the, gospel, in, in the Gospel of Matthew that says, Of all the, the, the people born of women... No one is greater than John the Baptist, right? Matthew chapter 11. But I tell you that he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than John the Baptist. How's that work? Ah, because up until the time of John the Baptist, we had the era of the, the Old Testament era. But with the coming of me, and now by the way, Jesus is after John the Baptist, right? I mean, technically speaking, John the Baptist, then Jesus. John the Baptist is the end of the Old Testament era. Jesus brings about the New Covenant. The New Covenant is the kingdom of God. Does that make sense? So if you're the least in the kingdom of God, you're greater than John the Baptist. What I'm bringing in is better and greater, because it's a fulfillment, than what anybody prior had ever experienced. So as great as John the Baptist was, you guys are even better. Does that make sense? Okay. So the law was proclaimed until John, but since then the gospel of the kingdom of God is preached. Right? So here we go. The law was proclaimed until John. That's the Old Testament era. But since that time, the kingdom of God, the gospel of the kingdom, and the word gospel means what? The good news. Ah, now we're in Luke's gospel, right? The good news in Luke's gospel is that which you proclaim to the poor. Right? Luke chapter 4. He goes into the synagogue. He reads Isaiah chapter 61 and he says, The gospel is being preached to the poor. The brokenhearted are being redeemed. Right? Those who are enslaved are being freed. This is the gospel. The gospel in Luke's gospel is the gospel to the poor. Does that make sense? So verse 16, the law were proclaimed until John, but since then the gospel of the kingdom was preached, and that's the gospel that goes to the poor. Ah, but it's easier for 
heaven and earth to pass away, then from one stroke of the letter to fail, which means I'm fulfilling it. Oh, and by the way, you guys are guilty just as much as the one who divorces his wife. Now, verse 19 is a parable that's going to illustrate this point. The parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Right? And we're going to look at this parable probably in a few weeks. It, we, we may may not do it. All right, here we go. Right? But very simply, what's the parable about, right? There's a rich man who enjoyed wealth and prosperity and everything now. There's a beggar who sat at his gate and longed to eat what fell from the... And, and the dogs licked his sores. But who's better off in eternity? The poor. The beggar. You might have enjoyed things now. You could be a lover of money now. You justify yourself in the sight of men now. You're esteemed. You're honored. But the gospel is being preached. And it won't do you any good in the long term. Make sense? Okay. Now. Let's go back one more step here. Luke 15. It's a little foggy, I have a feeling. Luke 15. And you have to do this with Luke's gospel. Don't use chapter breaks to tell you what's, that there's a change. Don't use the headings to tell you that there's a change. Let Luke tell you. Okay? So now, if you look in verse 3 of chapter 15, I'm not going to pull it up on the screen if that's okay. Luke chapter 15, verse 3, he told them this parable. Okay? Parable of the lost sheep. Now look at verse 8. My Bible has a heading above verse 8. The lost coin. Do you see any black letters? Jesus didn't stop talking. Or Luke doesn't interject. Just another parable though. Verse 11. And he said. Here's the third parable. Boom, boom, boom. Three straight parables, right? Chapter 16, verse 1. He was also saying to his disciples, which means whatever he said to the disciples in chapter 16, the parable of the unrighteous steward, is related to the three parables that he just told in the previous chapter. Because he doesn't change the scene. Okay? Chapter 16, verse 14, the Pharisees were listening, so now he goes back to the Pharisees and talks to them. Verse 19, no black letters at all, which presumes that this parable is told to the Pharisees. Chapter 17, verse 1, he said to the disciples. Now he's transitioning back to the disciples. So, three parables in chapter 15. Chapter 16, he speaks to his disciples. Chapter 16, 16, verse 1. 16, verse 14, he speaks to the Pharisees, keeps talking to the Pharisees. Chapter 17, verse 1, he said to the disciples. Verse 5 of chapter 17, the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And he said, verse 11, and it came about while he was on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing between Samaria and Galilee. Change of scene. A clear change of scene. Scenery, setting, uh, people involved. Everything's changed. So now we know, verse 11 of chapter 17, we need to stop. But, go back to chapter 15 one more time. Verse 3 again. He told them this parable. Who's the them? We've got to go back. Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 15. All the tax collectors, or tax gatherers, and, uh, and the sinners were coming nearer to him to listen to him. And both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And he told them this parable. Ah. So here's what's happening. That 
Now, notice chapter 15, verse 1. It's a scene change, isn't it? He changed the scene. He changed the setting. He gave us context. Here's what's going on. All these people are coming to Jesus, and he's eating with them. The Pharisees are grumbling. So chapter 15, verse 1 is a great chapter break. Excellent job. A clear change of scenery. Three parables, then, are all told to the Pharisees in chapter 15 to explain why he's eating with tax collectors and sinners. So we'll, we'll go back to this next week now. Okay? The three parables of chapter 15 are, are told to the Pharisees as to why he's eating with tax collectors and sinners. No. Okay, good question. Sin, is sinners just a, 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 a way of categorizing everybody that's not one of the Pharisees? Um, it's a way of categorizing the, the, the shamed as opposed to the honored. And the honored is not just the Pharisees. So if we use honored and shame, it might be a bit, all right. It's the outcast, it's the poor, it's the lame, it's the sick, uh, it's the prostitutes, it's the tax collectors who work with the, the you know, it's Gentiles. It could be, uh, here's probably a Jewish designation. It's all of those kind of categories. Good question. Good question. All right, very well. Making sense a little bit. And again, I, I don't expect that everything we're doing in the first two weeks here is going to make sense until we go back a little bit next week. We're going to look at the three parables of chapter 15. That is the plan for next week. Then maybe we'll go back to the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Maybe then we'll touch on the chapter beginning of 17. Kind of put all this in perspective. Yeah, Ralph. Yeah. It's not a complete caste system. It's a, it's a social dynamic. A, a caste system is more rigid where you can't get out of it and things like that. Um, uh, but yeah, the basic idea, I think, sure, yeah, the basic idea is fine, right? right? I, I think the, the category of sinners is just, in, in looking at the nation as a whole, we're honored, they're the sinners. To the tax collectors, sinners, you know, outcasts, lepers, etc. Very well. All right. Any other questions? No. Are we, are we okay? All right. Let's go. Uh, chapter or page five in our outline. All right. So, uh, and I will go back in the next couple of weeks. Probably not next week. Still looking at page four. So we reviewed that very briefly at the end of class last week. Well, let's go to page five. And here's what I want to do. And next week, we're going to look at the three parables, and this, this information will be pretty important in light of that. So what I want to talk about is, is the, uh, what I said last, last week, is the Bible is about Jesus. And if we want to talk about how do we interpret the Bible, all right, we've already begun to realize, okay, I need to know the history, I need to know the culture, I need to know the context, um, I need to know who wrote it, when did he write it, or at least have a feel for some of that, the best we can discern. Um, I need to know the language. Um, uh, um, uh, why is he writing to these people? Uh, what's going on in Corinth? What's going on in, in Ephesus? Who is uh, Nahum? And what's the historical co context? All, right. all those things are very, very, very important. All right. And we're going to talk more and more about those things as we, as we proceed. But the other thing to bear in mind is the Bible's a story. And this, I think, is what's lost most of the time uh, on us. And it's, this is very important for two reasons. One, if we don't understand the story of the Bible, you really can't understand the New Testament. 
Not fully. The level of understanding of the New Testament is going to be limited. All right? And we'll basically make the, the Bible a bunch of moral do's and don'ts. We can get all that out of the Bible. You, you can figure all that out. But you fail to understand the story of what's happening. You fail to understand what's going on in the New Testament. All right. Second reason why it's so important is this. Because we don't understand how we fit into the story. And if you don't understand how we fit into the story, we will fail to grasp our mission. And now, not our individual missions, I mean the mission of God's people as a whole. What's going on? The story kind of has a dot, dot, dot to it. Right? The book of Acts ends, but the church doesn't. And almost 2,000 years later, it's still going on. And we know that there's that revelation thing, and so I... But that hasn't all, the climax hasn't happened yet. The New Jerusalem hasn't come down from heaven to the earth. If so, this is not what we expected. Uh, right? So the reality then is, we're living between the end of the book of Acts and the New Jerusalem coming to the earth in, in, in totality. And the story is still, is still going on. So it's really important for us as God's people to understand what the mission of God's people is, etc. Make sense? All right. So... The big thing I'd say is, the uh, central message of the Bible is God's redemptive work in history. Right now, redemptive is one of these big words. Um, to redeem means basically to buy back. All right? um, to restore something might be another way of using uh, uh, this particular word. Um, uh, and, of course, what's he, what's he restoring? Here's where we get one of the problems. What's being restored, the answer to that question may throw us off track a little bit. Let me explain what I mean. What I think most of us have been raised to understand is that the answer to the question is what's God restoring is, he's restoring um, fallen mankind. Because we're sinners and we fell from God's presence and we, and, 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 uh, we, we became lost. Okay? Um, and so... The Bible is about how God's going to bring us back to him. All right, well, true, but. True, but. That's only a portion of it. What's going to be redeemed is, gonna, is the garden. And I would support the statement, it's the garden, by noting the fact that the last two chapters of the Bible is the garden. Revelation 21 and Revelation 22 is the garden redeemed. Mission accomplished. Now, included in the garden redeemed is us, right? Who were kicked out of the garden. And now what happens? The nations are back in the garden. The nations will walk by its light. Revelation 21. Like verse 22, 3, 4, 25. Some more in that. All right. The nations will walk by its light. Ah, the nations are back into the garden now. And by the way, it's not just the garden. It's the garden redeemed. It's the garden perfected. It's the garden glorified. Okay, I'm good with that. But there's more to it than just mankind, right? It's the entire cosmos. It's the entire creation. The whole creation wills and grows. Okay, so it's God's work, uh, redemptive work in history. So it's how God's going to restore the garden. Now, it's okay if we say, well, mankind's presence or God's presence amongst mankind. Because that's really the essence of the garden, isn't it? Right? But the point I'm making is, 
saying that what God's restoring is mankind, uh, God's presence amongst mankind is it makes the entire Bible only about us. As if everything has to do with humanity. But what was the purpose of humanity? We were called and we were made to what? Bear God's image to creation. It's not all about us. It's, it's, it is about us. That's true. But it's not only about us. Make sense? All right. Any, any questions, comments? You guys like, hmm. You guys like, pouring my head off today. All right. Here we go. There you go. Letter A. The purpose of the Bible is to narrate redemptive history. All right? Its subject matter is the redemption of his people, which began in the coming of Christ. And again, it's more than just the redemption of his people. All right? Uh, but that's all right. The capital B. The focal point of the whole redemptive activity is the person of Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection. That's called Christocentric. Mention this a little bit. That's kind of a little bit of review, right? Christocentric, meaning... The center of the Bible is Christ. Okay? And this is the whole story now. Is that, are we tracking so, so far? No questions about A or B? All right, the focal point is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Okay. And, and by the way, the class I'm doing tomorrow night, we're going to talk about the death and resurrection of Jesus, but I'm also going to ask that, answer that question, and that is, uh, the question I posed to them last week was, why is there all the stuff in the middle? We're familiar with the birth of Jesus, and we know why that's important. And we're familiar with the death and resurrection of Jesus, and we kind of know why that's important. But why is there all the stuff in the middle? In other words, Matthew has two chapters on the birth. Matthew has three chapters on the death and resurrection. But Matthew's 28 chapters long. That's 23 chapters of the middle. What's the big deal? He was born, sinless, great, died on the cross, rose again, we're done. Why so much in the middle? By the way, Mark hardly even has a resurrection account. Very little. The death and resurrection, chapter 15, Mark has no birth. Mark has 14 chapters in the middle. Huh? John has no birth. Got two chapters, well, three chapters on the death and resurrection. Well, you include the trials. You can add a fourth chapter if you want. Okay, right? But you got 18 chapters of the middle. Ah, the middle is pretty important. So we have to figure out what's going on with that. That makes sense? All right, life, death, and restoration of Christ is the center. All right, now, now letter C. The res- so my first point earlier was two problems with our, our misinterpreting the Bible as a story is we, we don't understand capital. We don't understand letter B. If you don't understand that the Bible is a story and that ultimately the fulfillment of that story is Jesus... You, we're going to miss a lot about interpreting the Bible. Let us see. The application of this redemptive activity is us, the redeemed people of God, i.e., the church. And here's what I mean by that. And this is this is like I think extremely vital because this is how the Bible speaks to us today. All right? And that is this. Letter or point number one: the work was accomplished by Christ. And that now it results in our responsibility to bear witness to the nations. In other words, and, and maybe I'll say it this way, and this might, this might sound like way too strong, Rob, and I don't think it is. But let's see, if, we'll see, see about this, right? The work was accomplished by Christ, and it's continued by us. Right? What Christ started, we're finishing. 
Now, I'm not equating us to Christ in the sense that Christ is the second person of the Trinity. Therefore, no, no, no. I'm saying the mission of Jesus Christ is the mission of God's people. And we'll look at this more and more as we go further. So I'm going to, I'm going to, actually, I'm going to save it. I'll save it because I'll just reiterate it at the same point later on. That, all right? Um, see if I can expand on that thought a little bit more and more and more. So if we don't understand the mission of Jesus, one second. If we don't understand the mission of Jesus, then you can't understand our mission. I think Jerry was right. Yes. Oh, absolutely. That, that's absolutely correct. All right, and the statement is, and we've kind of gone over this in some other classes, but the statement is that what makes us different, so what I'm saying is that the work accomplished by Christ now results in our responsibility to bear witness to the nations, and we're going to see this shortly, but that was Israel's responsibility in the Old Testament time, right? That was their task. Why didn't they accomplish it? Because they couldn't accomplish it. Because they didn't have the Spirit. So that even though Jesus rises from the dead... And even though now the disciples are told, go to all the nations, it's, oh, wait here. Don't go yet. Wait till you receive power from on high, and then you'll be my witnesses to the nations. So, absolutely. And that speaks a lot about understanding the role of the Spirit. It also speaks a lot about our need to rely and depend upon the Spirit of God daily in order to fulfill our mission. So, very well. Mark, did you have your hand up? Yeah. Correct. That's right. That's right. And, and, and the book of Romans, in fact, says, right? How will they hear unless someone, unless someone preaches to them? How will someone preach to them unless they are sent? If we don't fulfill the task, God's kingdom is not built. And that sounds almost blasphemous, but, but it's not blasphemous, and here's the reason why. Because God chooses to build his kingdom through us. God in his sovereignty says, look, I'm going to use you feeble people. I'm going to empower you, so it won't be by your might nor by your power, but by, but by my spirit. But that's how, right? It's not, hey, Pharaoh, here's what I think. It's Moses, go tell Pharaoh what I think. God empowers us. So, as Paul says in the book of Romans, if we don't go, they won't hear. Right? And that's, that's I can see some people's faces are being telling. All right, right? What's not a bad thing? Uh, Lucy, I'm sorry. Uh, yes, uh, I, maybe I, we, would get, we would expand that a little bit more, but the statement is that, that our responsibility is to, to love others and take care of others. Um, I, I would say it this way, love actually is who we are to become. It's who we are to be, not what we are to do. Okay? Love is not a task that we do. Love is a character of who we are. So when we be, in other words, God is love. He doesn't do love, he is love. Love becomes what he does because that's who he is. So love is one of those attributes of, of who we who our character is. So in other words, character formation, or what we might call spiritual formation, 
is essential for us to live out the mission of Christ, or the mission of God's people. Because I must be formed in the image of Christ. So you'll know Paul would say, for example, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And it's not just in his actions, it's in his who he is. Then, that carries over by, by what we do, and of course, I would expand by saying, well, it's not just loving others, that's, 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 the, that's the primary character, right? That's, love is the primary attribute of who we are, so loving others becomes the primary moral task, I guess you would say. Um, but, of course, we say, well, let's go back to the garden to find out what our actual mission is, and we were to be what? Image bearers. And image bearers means we make God known to creation. We're supposed to, so that would be our mission because, you see, in Genesis 1, to be image bearers wasn't to be image bearers to other humans because all humans knew God's image. But with Genesis 3 and the fact that mankind sins, now we realize, oh, being image bearers means we have to be image bearers to other, hum- other to the rest of humanity. So that's making God's, you know, uh, God known to the nations, right? Um, or to bear witness to the nations. That's, that's bearing God's image. And then also I'd say... Yeah, that's right. Uh, well, I say we become love uh, by the full, you know, I mean, if we were to do a full class on spiritual formation, that's, this, that would be the answer to the question. And that is, how do I get my, spiritual, my spirit form? Well, not, by the way, that we became a member of God's kingdom by denying ourselves. You want to be my disciple, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. So that life of self-denial is how I even got into the kingdom of God. And now as I continue that life of self-denial, that's why prayer is important, fasting is important, tithing is important, um, fellowshipping with other believers is important, um, giving is important, um, uh, uh, worshiping is important, uh, you know, studying a scripture is important. All of those things are the process through which our character is being formed more and more and more. Constant repentance, right? Um, constant contrition. Uh, through which now Christ is, I'm being formed in the image of Christ. As Paul says, so maybe in the book of Colossians, that every man is being presented as perfect in Christ. That's kind of, that's kind of the goal. Does that make sense? Uh, but the other thing I was going to add is our mission also then includes, all right, being God's image bearers means ruling over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, subduing the earth, which are caring terms, not exploiting terms, right? Caring for and cultivating the garden, Living in fellowship with mankind, Adam and Eve, right? The two should become one. So, we be, okay, this becomes our mission. Very well. All right, and we have another class on the mission of God's people, which is, what I think, one of the most important classes that we have. Right here also. All right, very well. Any questions, comments, any remarks? Uh, very well. All right, so uh, let's take a break. It's good to see we've gotten some. So here we go. So what I want to do now is, and I, and I, my, 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 my exhortation to you all is, I don't want to go over this too fast, and I'm, I'm, a, I'm, I'm concerned that I'm going to go too quickly. So stop me if you need, if you need to, because I, I want to. Basically, what I want to do now is support that conclusion. In other words, my conclusion is 
that the Bible is about God's redemptive work in history. The focus of it is Jesus, life, death, and resurrection of Christ. And the application of it is us, the God's people. Not just us, but of course, Paul and uh, Aquila and Priscilla and, and the church throughout history. All right. So I want to support that statement. So I've got, but I know I have way too much material here. I can't go through it all. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to comment on the, on the major points and then kind of move forward with that. So, okay? So you got to stop me if you're like, okay, Rob, I think you think you're ready to go on, but you're not ready to go on. Stop for a second. Fair enough? Because you guys haven't been doing that all night. Let's be honest here, people. Okay. <laughs> I'll, take the com- I'll take the comment from Ron. What the heck? Uh, uh, Jesus in the Bible. So we'll start with Luke 24. Did we, did we look at that last week? Okay. Hey, you can't let him talk, though. Yeah, yeah, sorry. Okay, it's a book in the Bible. It's called Luke. Yeah, L-U-K-E. Those are letters of the alphabet. I can't explain that to you right now. Luke 24. Did we look at Luke 24 last week? No? Okay. Fair enough. Thank you. This is Jesus, Jesus after the resurrection. He appears to the disciples in the upper room. They don't get it. They don't realize who he is. They're frightened. They're, they're afraid. They think they saw a ghost. And he said to them, verse 44, These are my words, Luke 24, 44, which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day. That repentance for forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem, and you are witnesses of these things. Now, I think we have the key points, B and C above, right here. All right? The point, the point B is, the Bible is about Jesus. And his answer is, look, everything about, and Moses, the, Psalm, the prophets and the Psalms, which is a threefold way of referring to the entire Old Testament. Early in, in the same chapter, he refers to the Law and the Prophets, which is a twofold way of referring to the you know You can refer to the Old, the Old Testament as the Law and the Prophets, or the, the Law, the Psalms and the Prophets. And that's the one he chooses here. The Old Testament is about me. Now, you guys don't get that. Now, by the way, these are people who know the Old Testament. Think about this. They know the Old Testament, don't they? The Jewish leaders who had him crucified knew the Old Testament, right? But they failed to understand that the Old Testament was about Jesus. They thought it was about about Noah, and about Joseph, and about David, and about Moses. And because of that, they didn't see Jesus in it. See, even after he rose from the dead... At this occasion, the disciples don't get it. And then what does he do? He opens their minds. How does he open their minds? Remember last week we we talked, one of the problems we have in interpretation is we take our assumptions to the text. Jesus gave them a brand new set of assumptions. A new set of stained glass windows, or rose-colored glasses, if you want to call it that. And the new set of rose-colored glasses is... Read it as though it's about me. Oh, that's what it means. I get it now. 
If you just read the Bible, by the way, if you just read it straightforward, without assuming it's about Jesus, you're going to be hard-pressed to find Jesus in it. I mean, we can do it. We can. Okay, right? We can go to Isaiah 53, one of the most famous passages, and say, see, that's the cross. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. As a sheep before his shears is silent, so, right, so he did not open his mouth. That's the cross. Okay, no problem. But there's a lot of other details of the life of Christ that we would be missing unless we go, oh, it's actually about Jesus. Oh, that makes sense. Oh, that makes sense. Oh, that makes sense. Okay, now that's a little bit more deep uh, than I intended to go, but here we go. The second point was, yeah, yes, please. That's right. Okay, the, question, the statement is, but I thought they were looking for the Messiah. And the answer is, they were looking for the Messiah that they had understood from the Old Testament. But let, we all do this. We like that verse, we don't like that one. We like that verse, we don't like that one. So what did they do? They read all the passages of the Old Testament that talks about the Messiah being the king. And they were expecting a kingly political Messiah. Now, there are other aspects of the Old Testament that we realize are about the kingdom of God. Let me see if this makes sense to you. But they might be better understood about the climax of the kingdom of God. They're about the New Jerusalem. And they thought that that's what what the Messiah is going to bring. Peace and prosperity. And you can get that from the Old Testament. And the Jews bring peace and prosperity. Trick question. Yes. Peace I give unto you. Right? He brought the peace, didn't he? And whatever you need, in my name, if you ask, I'll give it to you. There's the prosperity. But they misunderstood. Because the peace and prosperity is, I'm going to give you whatever you need to accomplish my will. And my will is that you die. Oh, don't worry, I'm going to give you peace. While you're hanging on the cross upside down. Right? While you're being scourged. I'll give you peace. So they missed that part. So what they also missed, and of course, we, by the way, the modern Christian church does the same problem. We have prosperity teachers who misread it, don't we? I think so. That's my personal opinion. Not to express written permission of fortune fellowship, but that's Rob Darable right there. Okay. 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 Disclaimer, disclaimer, disclaimer. Here we go. Um, all right. Uh... What we realize then is, wait a second, the kingdom of God's going to come through suffering. Right? So, let me, we'll talk more, more and more. Does that help a little bit? Yes, Bill. Okay. So, having the Holy Spirit would be the empowerment needed to accomplish the mission. Well, in a sense, you do, but at the same time, uh, so the, it's a both and. The, the Holy Spirit is that which is necessary for us to understand and to be empowered by. So you can maybe say, well, he gave them some divine insight here that would later come to more fruition after they received the Spirit. So they have some level of understanding. And by the way, even then, even after they get the Spirit, they're still continuing to grow in their understanding. Peter's still not going to go to Cornelius' house in Acts chapter 10 unless the Spirit comes and says, go to his house, even though Jesus said, Mark 7, go to his house. Uh, well, the question could go a couple directions, so I'm not sure which way, which which one you're going. So, but I would say your insight might not be better than a person who's a Bible scholar. 
they might have a better understanding. The difference is you believe and obey because of the Spirit. And that's what separates us as members of God's kingdom from someone who's just a scholar and knows it all but doesn't believe it. Or certainly, or doesn't, or maybe they know it and understand it and believe it, but they really don't obey it. Ah, right? The one who keeps my commandments, that's the one who loves me. So, yep, very well. Now, the second aspect of this statement is uh, our, our mission, right? See, letter C is the Bible is about Jesus, and that's what Jesus says. Look, all these things were, are written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, and they must be fulfilled. Second point is, the application of the Bible is us, the, the us carrying out the mission. And look at what Jesus says. Um, verse 46, it's written that Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem, and that's your job. Verse 48, your witnesses. So, the Bible's about me, and the fulfillment is you proclaiming that message. Make sense? Okay. Now, I think there's more, and I'd love to go more, but I think we could talk for two hours, literally, on this one point, and we're not going to do it. So, here we go. Um, letter A. Jesus cites the Old Testament and applies it to himself. Okay? Uh, Matthew 22, Matthew 26, Matthew 27. Um, and so this is, this, I know it's, the Bible's about Jesus. How do we know that? Well, Jesus applies the Bible to himself many times. Okay. Letter B. Uh, I think this is maybe the, 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 the crux of the matter. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. This is the bottom line. And this is almost indisputable in my opinion. For as many as may be the promises of God in him, they are yes. As many as are the promises of God in him, they are yes. Scriptures fulfilled in Jesus. Okay? See, we kind of could have two different schools of thought here. I'm arguing that everything in the scripture is ultimately about and fulfilled by Jesus. That doesn't mean that the story of David's not about David. It is. But it also points us to Christ. That Joseph's not about Joseph. It is, but it also points us to Christ. That the sacrificial laws are not about sacrificial laws. They are, but they also point us to Christ. Okay? In other words, it's both. And I'm saying that everything is. Now, the second possibility is kind of what I think many of us are raised on, and that is that there are certain verses in the Bible, in the Old Testament, that point us to Jesus. There's Isaiah 53. There's Psalm 22, verse 1. Okay? Not verse 2, just 1. Just verse 1. Okay, right? Right, and that we point to these isolated verses. Isaiah 7, 14. Right? Uh, the virgin shall be with child. Okay. Now, Isaiah 7, 15 is not about Jesus, but 7, 14 is. Okay. And what I'm saying is, no, no, no. We have to read the entire story, the whole thing, from Genesis to Malachi, in light of Christ. We know that the temple points us to Jesus, right? Yeah. So now, this verse, I think, puts, you know, kind of the, 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 the swivel more on my side. And that is, as many as are the promises of God, every promise is yes in Jesus. Ah, it's about Christ. It's about Christ. The whole thing is about Christ. Let me see if I, I'll explain this way, and, and I, I think I have some things in the notes that might solidify this point a little bit more. Jesus, and I'm going to support this here in a, in a little bit. Jesus is Israel. He is. 
what Israel was called to do and be, Jesus did and was. Now, I'm going to support this here a little bit. So when you say, oh, the Bible is also about, it's about, about the people of Israel. Exactly. But that's Jesus as the ultimate fulfillment of all that. Make sense a little bit? Yes? Okay. All right, here we go. Um, uh, capital C, John chapter 1, verse 45. We found him of whom Moses uh, in the law and the prophets wrote. Uh, oh, this is, a, this is a great verse. Here we go. Romans chapter 1. Romans, oops. Chapter 1, verse 1. This might also, I think, make the point well. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand. The which refers to the gospel. Right? The gospel of God, which he promised, i.e. God promised, beforehand, through his prophets, in the Holy Scriptures. So we're talking about the gospel that God promised through the Old Testament concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the Spirit of Holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. See, it's about, it's about Jesus. Make sense? The gospel which God promised beforehand is about, it's concerning his Son. It's about Jesus. And he doesn't say, oh, that verse, that verse, that verse. I think it's the whole story. Okay? All right, here we go. Um, capital uh, E. Is Jesus' own death and resurrection are viewed as something that the Old Testament mandates? Mark 8.31, Acts chapter 2. All right. So, and, and we can go on further and further, and there's actually a, kind of a provocative way I can go here, but I'm, I'm not going to go. So any questions, comments, or thoughts? Or I, I think I get it, but I'm not sure. We're okay? Right, let's move forward. Here we go. Now, uh, next point. The theme of Scripture is that Yahweh, this is Yahweh, Y-H-W-H or Y-H-V-H, is God's divine name in the Old, it's Hebrew, for God's divine name. Yahweh, in English, is Lord. Okay? Now, there's two words in Hebrew that translate as Lord, but this is the, the divine one. So the theme of Scripture, Yahweh wills to be made known. God wants the world to know Him. Period. And maybe even more, more than the world. He wants creation to know Him. That's the garden. You know what we're going to do? Let's make man in our image. Why make man in his image? Because now the creation that he just made, now they know who God is. Yahweh wills to be made known. And he made us in his image to make him known. Okay? Um, uh, so Exodus chapter 6. All right, Exodus chapter 6. 6 through 8. This is God speaking to Moses. It's kind of a funny story, by the way. If you read this story carefully, you'll laugh a lot. Um, Exodus 6, verses 6 through 8. Say therefore to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from their bondage. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Then I will take you from my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. And I'll bring you to the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. And you can just keep reading. This is the whole point of the entire passage. In fact, Moses, when you go to Pharaoh, then Pharaoh will know that I am the Lord. Right? The whole point is, God wills to be made known. Okay? And it was Israel's task to make him 
known. That was their job. I, I want to be made known, and I want you to make me known. All right, now let's look at Ezekiel, and I put a, a number of references, and we can look at more. I'm not going to bring it up on the screen because it'll, it'll be too hard to, to flip through these verses, but Ezekiel 37, 28 is the first one. Okay, and you can see these are from Ezekiel 37, 38, and 39. So in these three chapters, Ezekiel 37, 38, and 39, starting in Ezekiel 37, verse 28, and it says this. The nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. And now verses 24 through 27 was, I'm going to set my temple in your midst forever. The result of that is, verse 28, the nations will know that I am the Lord. Okay. Then 38, uh, verse 16, uh, you'll come up against my people Israel like a cloud to cover the land. It will come about in the last days that I shall bring you against my land in order that the nations may know me. Right, Ezekiel 38, verse 23, I shall magnify myself, sanctify myself, make myself known in the sight of the many nations, and they will know that I am the Lord. Right, 39, verse 6, uh, I shall send fire upon Magog and those who inhabit the coastlands in safety, and they will know that I am the Lord. Verse 7, my holy name I shall make known in the midst of my people Israel. I shall not let my holy name be profaned anymore, and the nations will know that I am the Lord. Verse 21, the nations, uh, and I shall set my glory among the nations, and all the nations will see my judgment, which I have executed in my hand, which I have laid on them. And the house of Israel will know that I am the Lord, from uh, their God, from that day onward. Right? And we can continue. We can get to, all right. It is a major theme in the book of Ezekiel. Right? 37, 38, 39, I am the Lord, you're going to know my, me. The nations will know me when I set my sanctuary in your midst. My sanctuary is the temple. Right? And we can go further here. It would be fun, but we won't. All right, here we go. Now, capital, or point number five. Or, or I'm sorry, not, not point number five, but uh, next subheading. Jesus is God made known. This is the whole point. God wills to be made known. Answer, Jesus is God made known. Let me see if I got this point. No, I don't. All right, uh, it's not on your outline. John chapter one. John chapter 1. Sorry about this. I'm going to read verse 18. John 1, 18. I'm sorry, that's not the one I wanted. It's John, yeah it is, yeah it is, John 1, 18. I'm like, ah, I just typed in the wrong number. Compare some translations here, just kind of get a little bit of feel. The ESV up at the top is, 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 is it's just a simpler translation. No one has ever seen God. The only God who's at the Father's side, He has made Him known. Okay, and that's confusing. But if you look carefully in the verse, there's two gods. One is no one's ever seen God, but then there's this only God who's at the Father's side. The only God who's at the Father's side is Christ. All right? In fact, if you look at the New American Standard, it says, the only begotten God, which is actually a better translation there, uh, which of course is Christ. Right? For God so loved the world that he gave us only, the only begotten is Jesus. So, no one's ever seen God, and I would say that's the Father. But God the one and only, or God the only begotten, who's at the Father's side, He's made Him known. This is the point. This is the thesis statement in the Gospel of John. You've never seen God, but Jesus has made Him known. In fact, this, uh, this is not only the thesis statement in the Gospel of John, the climax 
of the Gospel of John, then it's chapter 14, verse 9. John 14, verse 9. All right, and here you go. Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? The thesis statement is, no one's ever seen God, but Jesus has made him known. Fourteen chapters later, Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. This is the theme of Scripture. God wills to be made known. That's why he put Adam and Eve in the garden. But that didn't happen because of the fall. Adam and Eve didn't accomplish their will, God's will. That's why he called Abraham was to make him known to the nations. But Abraham and the people of Israel failed. Right? And we, we'll go over this later. But you are my witnesses, says the Lord. My servants whom I have chosen. But then the, the book of Isaiah goes, but who is so blind as my witnesses? My witnesses are blind. They didn't do the job. Then Jesus comes along and says, here I am. I'll make you know. It, it, this is actually kind of, kind of almost, I think, ironic. Right? We, we, we talked a little bit about Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses, and we love the people. We don't agree with what they teach. We'll treat them with gentleness and respect because they're a sinner in need of a Savior, just as I was a sinner in need of a Savior. And if it's not for the grace of God, there go I. That's pretty good because I, like, I said it slow. Yeah, I, I did that. All right, very well. Um, I was like, wow, I'm getting it out slowly, and it's coming, in, and it's like, makes sense there. All right, all right. Yeah, no, I do mean it every time. I just literally struggle saying it slowly. Okay. All right, anyways, uh, the irony is this. They come to our houses with the Bible in their hands, and they believe the Bible says that Jesus is not God. And this is the central theme of the Bible, is that Jesus is God made known. That's the whole point of the Bible. God has made himself known in Jesus. I mean, it's like, it's just, it's just the absolute foundation of the entire New Testament. It's like, well, show me a verse that says that. It's like, show me the whole thing. Matthew 1 through Revelation 22. There you go. It's just this underlying foundational assumption is that Jesus is God made known. Make sense? Okay, now, let's go to letter A on the outline. Romans 10.9. Romans 10.9. Oh, no, my program is going to shut down. Okay, so I'm going to go to Romans 10.9, but I'm not going to put it up on this. On the, on the, i got to bring it up. I'll just fire it back up. It should come right. It should come right back up. But it's going to come up without my translations. And yeah, it, see, it messes me up. I don't know. It, it does this every once in a while. So okay, I got the New American Standard. I don't want you. Go away. Here we go. Uh, New American. Okay, we're good. So Romans. Paul says Romans ten nine. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you shall be saved. For, with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness, with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For, the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be dis disappointed. For, there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches and for all who call upon him. For, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Okay, now here's the significance. Verse 13 is quoting Joel chapter 2, verse 32. Okay, you can see it right here in the notes. Joel 2, 32. Okay? Verse 13 is quoting Joel 2, verse 32. Joel 2, verse 32 says, 
Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, you notice how the New American Standard here has put it, Lord, in all caps. Because I mentioned earlier, there's two words in Hebrew that both translate as Lord in English. Yahweh and Adonai. So what the New American Standard does is whenever it's Yahweh, they put it in all caps. If it's Adonai, they'll just have a capital L and call it, and it'll be Lord. All right. Yahweh is God's most sacred name. It's the name above all names. It's so sacred a Jew will not say it. Okay? And the point is, whoever calls upon Yahweh will be saved. All right, now, notice that the word for is at the beginning of each of these sentences. It occurred one other time, the word for here, but it does, it's, not the same, it's not the same force. So the guy who put the verses in did a good job because he recognized, ah, that word for is very significant. And the word for in each of these verses basically says, the reason why. So if we go back to verse 9, if you believe and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, now it's not in all caps because it's written in Greek. It's not quoting the Old Testament here. No big deal at all. Okay. If you believe that Jesus is Lord, then you will be saved. That's verse 9. Why? Well, the reason why is because whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But the name of the Lord is Yahweh. And if you call on Jesus' name, it's the same as calling on the name of Yahweh. Because Jesus is Yahweh. Make sense? Jesus is God made known. All right, 1 Corinthians 12, 3, the other verse on your list there, Romans 10, 9. 1 Corinthians 12, 3 is that no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit. And there you go. Jesus is Lord is the, element, uh, the utmost foundation of the entire Bible. Jesus is God made known. Very well? Okay. Um, and we'll stop there. We didn't get to capital um, um, point number six, uh, or, or page six, so we're going to have trouble going over the parables next week. So let me think about what I'm going to do about that. All right. Any questions? Comments? Nine remarks? Okay. So next week what we're going to do is we're going to look at what's that, what's that story then? The story is about Jesus... It's fulfilled, its application is in the life of God's people today, continuing that story. It's ultimately the story is about God being made known, whom Jesus was God made known. But now we're going to go back a little bit more thoroughly and look at the story of Israel, their call, their role, who they were, what they were supposed to do. And then we'll look at see and Jesus fulfilled that. And then we'll look and go and see now the New Testament people of God are continuing, that, continuing on that, that mission. Make sense? All right, let's close in prayer. So, Father, again, we, we, we ask that you would um, help us to understand, as we have talked about tonight now, we begin to realize that this story is really important for us. That the Bible is not just some uh, rule book of do's and don'ts. It's a story. A story of your love for humanity. Your love for all of creation. It's a story in which we are partaking of. So help us, Father, to be faithful image bearers. Help us to be those who grow in love as, as a characteristic of who we are. That as we live out that story, that the world may know that we are Christians because we love one another. Oh, Father, build your kingdom. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. It's our prayer. But now we realize that we're the ones that have to fulfill that prayer. 
but not by might, nor by power, but by your Spirit. We praise you and thank you now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, have a good night. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you would like more information on the Determined Truth podcast, you can find us on iTunes. You can follow Rob's blog at DeterminedTruth.com or purchase his books on Amazon.com. See you next time.